Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, lads. Thanks for tuning into the podcast again. Don't forget to like and subscribe and head over to the Patreon to contribute and help us out. Thanks a million and enjoy the podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Tonaris Podcast. As always, I'm joined by my good friend, Timmy Lang. Hi, everyone. Rowan is on the decks. Hi, Rowan. Hello. Uh, I'm James Leonard, and this week we have a Limerick man, our first Limerick guest, Joe Slattery. How are you, Joe? I'm good, thanks. Thanks Thank, for having me. Thanks for coming down on a beautiful Sunday morning. Yeah, no worries. I'm honoured to be your first Limerick man. Yeah, yeah, no better book either. <laughs> yeah. um, my first interaction with you, Joe, was a few months ago mm. on LinkedIn. You contacted me. And you said, hi, James, uh, i seen you on the Tommy Turner show. I'm actually on the Tommy Turner show in a few months, if you have any advice. Yeah. So that's kind of how we got connected. Will you tell us a little bit about how you ended up on the Tommy Turner show? Or maybe go back to the start, actually. Yeah. Who you are, where you're from, for the people that don't know you. Yeah, so as I said, my name is Joe Slattery, and I'm from Nimerick City, and originally from South Hill in Nimerick City. And I suppose... How I ended up on the Tommy Turner show was a bit of a whirlwind. So because of the job, the equine therapy that I do, I ended up doing a TED Talk in the Tivoli Theatre in 2018. And that got a lot of coverage. And then the, the Dublin Horse Show saw my TED Talk and they asked me to be a guest speaker on the Dublin Horse Show in, in 2019. So I'd done three days as a guest for them speaking around the, the positives of equine therapy. And as part of the promotion for the for the... Uh, for the Dublin Horse Show, I ended up on the Marion Finucane Show and I'd done a real intense interview with her, speaking about my life, speaking about my upbringing, speaking about my family and all the issues and all that was around that. And that went viral. That blew it away, you know. And that's how I ended up in the Tommy Turner Show. But it was the ripple effect from the TED Talk ended up on the mm. Dublin Horse Show, ended up the Marion Finucane Show. And, and Do you know the, the Marion Finucane, the TED mm. Talk, the Tommy Turner? Mm. Pretend now that you never did any of them. Yeah. And this is, people are hearing about you for the first time because yeah. a lot of our followers um, may have never heard you yeah, or yeah. You know, they might have a passing knowledge, but we're from South Hill. Do you want to tell mm. us a little about what it was like growing up? And Yeah. So, I mean, obviously at the time growing up there, you were just living your life and you knew no better and South Hill is the, was my world. You know, it's a very small bubble. But at the time of growing up there, in the, like I was born in 77, so the 80s and 90s were my kind of growing up there. And uh, where we lived even, it was quite unique because where South Hill is, it's actually on the edge of County Limerick. So if I come out my front door, I was looking at fields. But actually what I was looking at was a big stone quarry, right? Literally, you come out your front door, your council house garden, a footpath, and then you drop into a stone quarry. But past that, there was all fields. But then if you go to the back door, you're in the heart of South Hill and then you're in the heart of Limerick City. It's like Knocknaheny in Holly Hill, where we're yeah. from. Like, yeah. uh, where, where we're from, 
you're right next to the city centre, walk mm. there five, ten minutes, yeah. and then out the back door, your fields, and then you've Blarney, do you know, yeah, so yeah, like, yeah. I, I bring my dogs up to walk, there's a, a water tower up in Ochnahini, that's kind of our logo, it's like a reservoir, do you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. up around that, you've beautiful fields, do you know, and, but then, five minutes down the road, you've the city centre, do you know, yeah. so it's kind of yeah. like that. Yeah, so that, that, it was quite unique. Now, the one thing, uh, even at that time, when I look back now, it really bothers me and angers me, because they turned that quarry into a city dump. They filled it up. Now, literally, my front door, at the most, was 20 or 30 feet away from the city dump. And there was a, a row of houses, maybe 12 houses, and the angled off as you went down. But our house, out the front doorstep, and you're in the city dump. So that's what we grew up in the fucking city dump, right? So, and at the time, it was the best playground in the world. You're on there, you're hunting rats. Mm-hmm. You're having all these fights with rotten potatoes. And I remember one time someone dropped in big jars of Nutella. You were all eating it, like, you know, yeah, know. So it was fantastic, right? <laughs> but when I look back in, as a, but when you grow up in that kind of environment, it also sets the tone of what you're worth. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? You're worth living on a dump, right? Uh, and also then you're listening to the adults at the time who grew up in South Hill and you'd overhear them saying the people who are your peers that you're looking to try and model your behaviour off and they're like oh geez, you wouldn't put South Hill in the dress now you'd never get a job if, if people know you're from South Hill yeah. so you're hearing all this stuff about yourself that you're no good right and then that's the external and then internal within the family home like both my parents came from regeneration areas as well different areas of Limerick right and they had a, a horrific car crash in their early 20s so in probably 22, 23, my father lost both of his legs. My mother was nearly killed. She went through the window of the car. So, and there was three kids at this stage. So myself, my older brother, only 11 months between us and, and my younger sister. And I was probably four at the time. I'm not really sure. It's kind of vague. You know, it, mm. it, I don't have all the details. So we were all separated. And of course, no one told you. I was fully aware that my parents were gone, but no one told you where they were gone and what was happening. Next, you were all separated. So we were all thrown into different families, you know, different relatives, and no one told you what was happening. But I was actually with my relative in the block where we lived. So I used to be able to go down to the house and I'd go down outside the back door and I'd be like, oh, What's no, the story gone. Mm-hmm. everyone's gone, like, you know. So that, that was, I suppose, I, and the funny thing is I had no impact on memories of my life before that happening. So obviously, you know, I was three or four, so my father had legs and there was memories of that stuff. I had no memories of it. I, I don't remember any of that, right? Uh, so obviously they came back. But now when I look at it as an adult, they never came home. Mm. They died that night. Yeah. Different people come home. So my father, uh, mentally, emotionally, physically, subconsciously, never came back. A different man came back, you know. And then you had a, and like I said, they were in their early 20s, so now they'd be considered adolescents. They wouldn't be considered adults mm. yet, like, you know, with three kids. So you had my mother, who was dealing with all her own injuries, then had three kids to mind, and also a man in the background that was... Uh, broken for the lack of a better word you know full of anger you know probably full of self-despair probably full of his own insecurities because he wasn't the man he used to be you know so I can imagine now if I was him and this happened to me God will my wife leave me now will she think I'm someone else and then internally you're going to feel like you're someone else so as you can imagine he was having internal battles for a very very long time in himself Mm. my mother then like I said she was a career cleaner her entire life Um, three kids in the house so the house was swimming against the tide. So your mother was a ball of anxiety, trying to keep everyone happy. Your father in the background that was full of anger and rage whenever he was going on. So then you had the three kids. So that impacted me in a very negative way because we were in survival mode for a very, very long time. Isn't it just so, isn't it just so tragic, you know, that a young family, you know, can be just kind of fundamentally changed overnight yeah, from a crash, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's, it sounds, it just sounds very sad. I could picture, mm-hmm. you know, in your early twenties for a man, in your early twenties having a wife and kids and for your legs to be 
taken off oh, yeah. you know like yeah, yeah. the damage that does to you yeah yeah. that's sad like yeah and it, it took him many years to get over now he's, he sadly passed away since but it, it's he's an interesting character because everyone admired him because he was a great man right and he was a great man I mean he never had self pity and even when he died he was working and he had a car and we used to sell coal and blocks as kids so and he'd come out with us with the no legs right and he'd hold on to the back of the cart and we'd go around door to door selling the blocks but he'd be out in the back on the weekends chopping the blocks and bagging the grass the man was a machine right yeah. so everyone saw it oh, he's a great man he was but he, was, he wasn't a great father he was closed off. He couldn't show emotion. He was he was stone cold, like you know. Yeah. And then because I I'm, I suppose the way I responded in, I reacted out. Whereas my brother went inwards and went quiet, and I done stupid shit, and I got in trouble, and and I got things. So I'd get I'd go head to head with him then. So there'd be war in the house, and he fucking bit shit on me, like you know. So mm. then I had that side. So I never liked the man, you know, mm. because we were always clashing heads. So I never. He was never someone that I would go as a father figure to get advice from. And yeah. so that I had no one then I would go to for those kind of moments of yeah. needing security and needing comfort. How was your mother? Is it like she's carrying some burden there. Yeah, my mother My mother is an old school Irish mother with the head down the marches forward no matter what. Mm. At him. Never looks after her own needs. No, never. And now she's in her 60s and you can see... You can see the uh, residual effects of that on her. Like, you know, she's still working as a square cleaner and she won't stop because that's her life. That's what she does, you know. But she is, uh, she's just a machine, you know, and she just goes on. And we had, like, even though we had nothing for a long time, we had the best of nothing. We were always spotless clean. The house was always spotless clean. Our clothes were always clean. And, you know, we wouldn't be going around with holes in our jumpers. Uh, So that was kind of the background. But the one thing they both done that kind of stood to us forever to this day is... Uh, the grafting we had to work so I worked from a very young age because we all did so that mm. was the way it was done like my father and like my mother would tell us like she'd go to my father there's no money in the house we have no money he'd get the ladder on the bucket and he'd go start cleaning windows mm. in the neighbourhood so there was never embarrassment about making hard money mm. and you just made it and you went and grafted and that's how he done it he didn't do it by scamming and stealing he'd done it by grafting you know mm. so he made us graft as well from a young age so from a very young age I had a donkey mm. and then it turned into a donkey and cart Right, and then it turned into okay, we'll get blocks and brickets, and you grow and sell those in the donkey cart. And I don't know what age I was on, but I was young enough that we couldn't lift coal yet. We weren't strong enough. But when we got strong to lift coal, then we had the carts and the four wheeler. We go and do that, and in the summer times, then we go and cut grass, you know. And I used to hate it because I wanted to hang around with the lads because mm. all my spare time was hanging around with the lads on the corner and I'd be drinking and getting high and whatever. And he, now I know what he was doing was saving me from all that trouble. Mm. He was making me work to distract me from having too much time. Because I guarantee you if I had too much time in my hands, I would end up in jail. Absolutely. I got arrested right. a few times for stupid stuff. You know, in um, South Hill, mm. would South Hill be an area where they would be overrepresented in the prison system? Um, would there be high levels of poverty and stuff like this? South Hill was one of the most disadvantaged areas in Europe for a while and it also had the highest murder rate yeah. right South Hill was I think it was about 500 houses and I'd say the vast majority of them were unemployed and a lot of them would have been single mm-hmm. mothers and generations of families of unemployment and early school age uh, and poverty and they were all plucked in together mm. so there was no it's very hard to aspirations to set the bar higher because everyone was on the same bar uh, of what the thought life was like there was a hell of a lot of trauma and I found that difficult because I'm actually quite a soft person quite emotional and I like being this way but at the time I don't have to share that with right mm. so that's where and you know I had no self-esteem 
I had no confidence. I was told I was going to end up in prison if I didn't stop. I was told I was stupid. I was a fucking idiot. You know, so I heard all those thoughts. And of course, I believed them. So I, did, I had no faith in myself. So I just hung out in the street with the lads as much as I could. I didn't want to be in the family home because I didn't like the atmosphere in the house. Mm. didn't like being around my father. So I spent my time out in the streets. And out in the streets then was a risky place to be because at any given time, you could find yourself in a situation that didn't need to happen, but mm. just would happen. And I was speaking earlier on to Timmy about this. I think there's so many people that are going around with undiagnosed PTSD and South Hill because it was a small area and because there was so much aggression up there and because there was so much tension in the atmosphere, everyone was going around ready to, to explode. So you couldn't have a disagreement with, with someone and verbally uh, figure it out. You know, it, it just went straight into attack mode. And, you know, people had knives and people had guns, you know. Uh, and as it went down in the 80s to the 90s, when drugs became more prevalent, so that obviously the guns coming in with them. And so did the, the gang-related families in that small area. So you had fuse mm-hmm. gone up there and people were drive-by shooting, like, you know. Uh, I remember one time I was in my front garden with my, my brother and my two nieces kicking ball. Loads of lads run past the balaclava, shot up the house down the road. And we were tentatively related to them. And when they were running past, one of them stopped. And he just stared at me for a second. And I, that second was two hours. <laughs> you know, just, because yeah. he was contemplating whether to take off shot or not. And then he ran off again. I like, think you know? the, the big difference, the big difference between Cork and Dublin and Limerick. In, in Cork in the eighties, nineties, we had a kind of organized crime here as well. Mm. Do you know? But it was after the nineties, really. There's never been really organized crime. Mm-hmm. You'd have kind of freelance, maybe small guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there was never that kind of culture of, Shootings. Now you'd have murders in Cork too, but they're yeah, isolated, yeah. you know. Mm. But never had the the feud and kind of element. They organised crime in Dublin and Limerick around that mm. time as well. We never really had that in Cork to me. We didn't. No, no, we uh, it, it never got to that kind of um, level. Really, it was just kind of small little groups of yeah gangs. Not even gangs, really, of lads just selling drugs and and you know there was never there was never any massive feud, you know, uh, within the city. Our, our, our real kind of gun crime within the city, it was all small enough, but you'd always see national news then with Limerick in it, our yeah. Dublin. Yeah. And now at the moment, there's there's other countries being brought into yeah, that kind of bracket like, as well. Um, Drop and down, stuff, yeah. yeah. Limerick, yeah. I mean, publicity, national publicity, it gets a bit of a raw deal anyway, but it always does because that sells, like, you know. And but but even before those big fuse that made the the headlines, you know, there was always little stuff going on in the communities anyway, like those little tough mm. wars. But people got killed during them, like you know. Mm. And sadly, there was a lot of people that weren't involved in gang in any way, but they'd get into a fight with another person, and sadly, one of them would die, and then there's two lives ruined. You know, the person was dead, and obviously, the person killed him. Yeah. And it, it's and it's so difficult because they're both all the families. That, I remember within one year there was probably ten murders, but they were murdered by ten people that lived in there. So you have two families living in one community affected by this. You had a whole community affected by mm. it. And then you're kind of caught in on who, whose sides do you take care of? Who do you say hello to? Who do you ignore? Know. You know, and all this went on because you could drag in then if you picked up, if you make the wrong decision, mm. you know? know? And this is all the stuff you're thinking about as you're going around your day to day, like, you know? Because there's a high sense of anxiety around Limerick at that time. Absolutely. Yeah, massive, Absolutely. Yeah. And I was only saying it, like, I can still see it now in Limerick. I can see it, I can watch it now because I know what to look for. And lads going around there and their light on their feet and they're constantly looking around. And the thing, when you're looking at them, they look shady, like, you know, that they're up to something, but they're not. They're actually just scanning around, scanning around, like, you know. Yeah. And uh, Limerick has changed over the years and there is a fantastic, 
uh, approach gone into tourism and making it a city of culture and a city of sport and taken away from that step city. It's no longer step city. That's gone. It's a beautiful city. But there is still, still those generations because you have the four generation areas around yeah. the city, you know, so it's on the outsource coming in. So th- that hasn't changed. Like they're still there, you know. Mm. Uh, now there's a lot of services been pumped into them and the regener- regeneration service itself has spent millions on services within the areas to make those lives better. And they have, they've been very effective in getting people to see their work, see their self-belief and change their perspective, but also change their parenting. So what they're doing is changing the parent from the next generation. So the parent that I got from a kid, I'm not going to do that to my kid. My kid is going to have a better upbringing, which means I've now changed that cycle of damage, you know. Mm. So they do a lot of work around that, but it's 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 further thinking, you know. It's yeah. not about just fixing one thing, it's actually fixing the whole generation of problems. Yeah. And it's also about, like, it's also about not bringing up the past mm. and passing the past on to your own kids. Yeah. Because that past, like, when I say the past, I'm on about... This stuff that went down in the early noughties, like in the late nineties up in Limerick, you know, mm. like that's the past. Yeah. You know, but when you pass that on to the, the next generations of kids, like it's, it can, it can be passed on because I remember when all the, the gangland stuff was going on in Limerick and, um, it was actually mental. People from other countries were actually afraid to go to Limerick for weekends yeah, yeah, yeah. and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's, that was the reality and people, were just bypassing Limerick because they were actually in fear because of what was going on at the time, you know. But, like, I've said this to you before. We we were having a chat. Like, I was, I was in the Midlands prison and there's a, there's a lot of lads from Limerick in the Midlands Mm. prison. And I got on with every single one of them, you know, because they see me just keep my head down and do my own thing. And I got on with them and, you know, they're, they're, I could, when I look back in hindsight, no, they were just really, really trying to, figure themselves out as well a lot of the, the, the older guys like were just like they had a bit of a rep as well but mm. they were also trying to control the younger fellas that were yeah, yeah, yeah. coming in and they wanted to you know they wanted to be a part of something as well and you know they were they had their own stuff going on as well but um i got on with them really well you know because i could see that they were just really doing their best and a lot of them probably will never get out of prison you know yeah. or, or they'll struggle to get out of prison at some stage. We're all very similar and we're all yeah. just human with emotions and exactly. some of us have hard, harder stories than others and some of us are better able to cope with those than others, you know. But when it comes down to it, we're just people who are trying to cope the best that we can and sometimes the decisions we make send us down a wrong road as in end up in prison, mm-hmm. right? And then you're in there but and then you're like, okay, do you know what? It's actually probably okay inside here at the moment. <laughs> Better off in here than I was outside, you know. Uh, but you also have time then to maybe think. You know, now I don't know. I haven't been in prison, right? So, I, you know, I, I can't speak from an area of expertise. But I know a lot of lads who have. And actually, it wasn't that bad. And it was probably safer and quieter. And the, the brain got to slow down in there than it did in their communities. I can definitely uh, testify that that's yeah. the truth for me as well. I Prison was like a almost respite for yeah. me. Do you know what I mean? Because the streets can be very harsh. Yeah. Do you know, and especially when you're in addiction, there's no easy day. Do you know yeah. what I mean? You're either looking for money to get drugs or sick or you know withdrawing. Most of the time, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Very very small percentage of the time, I actually high. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Most of the time is yeah. consumed with ways and means of trying to get money to use. You know. Do you know when I felt my safest ever? I felt my safest ever in my life. Being locked behind that door 
for 18 hours a day knowing that there's these big retaining concrete walls and bars on the window yeah. and a big ma- massive steel yeah. door in front of me and I knew that I'd be safe within yeah. the confines of that and, and I don't know how how it may sound you know, to other people but yeah, when I look back you. I never felt so safe in my yeah. whole life yeah. because I was away from my natural environment and I was here and when that door was locked it was like yeah, well, I felt safe. You're, you're safe and nothing can get into you yeah. and nothing can get yeah. out. And when you think about the Limerick lads that you were talking about, they're walking around, you know, looking around mm. like, you know, uh, chickens, uh, chicken heads, hyper vigilant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but when you're in there, there's all the walls around you, the door, you can kind of say, you know what, I'm actually yeah. fine here yeah. now, you know. But that's the PTSD, I think, you know, and you're hyper vigilant when there's a fear of threat and there's a fear that you're going to die, yeah. you know. Uh, but, but like I said, if those doors are locked solid around you, then no one can get in, then you can calm down, you know. Mm. But there is. It's a. But that was a very tough time in Limerick City's history. And yeah. just, when you, you said the term Stab City there, mm. I hadn't heard that term for years yeah. until Forbes article. Yeah, a few that weeks brought ago. it back up again. Oh, Jesus, that got some reaction. Yeah. I, that was a bad move. I don't know what that was. For, for people that don't know, right, there's two Limerick brothers, they're into yeah, the yeah. tech. Ron, you might have heard of them. They're billionaires now. Yeah, yeah. They yeah. set up a Stripe. It's like a. It's like a PayPal kind of PayPal. Yeah, it's thing. like a PayPal service, you know. So if you're buying something online, you'll use Stripe as like the middleman between you and the person you're buying from, mm-hmm. you know, they manage to pay. There are two young brothers in their maybe 30, mm. early 30s. Yeah, I don't even know. They're billionaires anyway, yeah. right? And Forbes had an article, American, you know, um, media, business media, had an article and it was like, from Stab City to Billionaire, you know, and there was some backlash online because it was sensationalist. It was, was like... Was that the heading then? Yeah, yeah and yeah. there was so much, it was so much backlash on the internet that they actually took down the whole article. Yeah. First, they, they changed the title and then they just got rid of the whole article. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, it was like, we've moved on from that, you know what I mean? It was yeah. a long time ago. It has, the city has vastly improved and vastly changed and, and the whole atmosphere and reputation of the city is is gone from that kind of way to where to where it is now like you know yeah if we go back to your story so yeah so you were on about um you didn't like being in the family home because of the atmosphere yeah. we is experimenting with alcohol and drugs and the streets are yeah from from a very young age i mean I, my mother tells me a story now i can of my grandfather i don't remember him i remember fearing the man right i don't remember any visual representation but i remember the fear of fearing him and my mother saying, oh, it's because I was smoking fags. And she said, oh, we'll sort him out in the, the, the grandfather old school. I'll make him a roll up and give him. So I smoked and it, and it done nothing, you know. But I can't even remember that man. Mm-hmm. So this was a, from a very young age. I was doing stuff that was causing damage, right? But yeah, for so what I would do is start to drink in the old cans of Carling, the cans of Fosters, we, me and one of my mates. And we used to play, <laughs> we used to play under 12 football. And I remember the manager, he's, he's Past since he said, I've never had two fellas turn up for drunk at your age before. Like, you know, the two so <laughs> up that And we only had two cans of caroling each, but we were kids, you know. But, uh, yeah, so that was it. And then obviously hash came in. So uh, I remember my first time smoking hash. I can still remember. I can clearly tell you everything that we done, like, you know. Uh, so we started smoking hash and then when the weed came in and it was a daily thing and we'd, we'd set, uh, the joints up for the night before for the next morning. So I, I was sedated morning, noon and night, you know. There was a time there where I, uh, I was gone from the family home. I, I, I didn't, I just had an argument. So I'm out here and went off to live one of my friends house. And at the time, there was an odd friend living there, and his father had been murdered by someone local, right? 
And so, and then I'm hanging out, and it was only a field away, you know, as in the, the house instead of where. And I was sleeping in, in this house with my mate, and the other lad was living there, sleeping there as well, and I was sleeping in this bunk bed, but it went across the top window. So my wind, my bed was over the top window of the house. And I laid there at night in the feet position, because just waiting for that window to be shot in, because these were serious people mm. that were up in court that murdered his father, and obviously witnesses and all this stuff, so the intimidation was going on. And I remember just having to lie there in the feet position. Terrified. Could stone as much as I could because I was thinking if I get shot, I won't feel it. You oh, know, and even though I had nothing to do with it, I was I still felt, I felt I was dragged into. You know, so stuff like that happened all the time where you just find yourself being dragged into shit, and yeah. you know, it wanted nothing to do with it. You know, uh, so that's what I done. I, I got stoned. I got stoned a lot, and I got drunk a lot, and you know, take cocaine and different things like that. You know, whatever. Actually, whatever was available, I would just mm. take it. Like you know, without much questions because. I didn't really care because I had no value in myself. I had no self-esteem, so it didn't matter what I was taking. I just will take off. Okay, like, you know? yeah. uh, but the one thing I'd done, which I had no choice of, I still had to go to work. Right? So I could be, and we'd sell coal and blocks, and it would be in the evening time, right? Because what we, usually what we do is after school, we come home, have our dinner, change your clothes, and then we'll sell coal and blocks. But then on the holidays, but you, you'd want to keep the same time as when you go around to people's houses so they know you're coming. So sometimes we wouldn't be at school, so I'd have all day up to four o'clock. And I'd be down the field drinking two litres of cider with my mate in the field. And then I'd be sniffing petrol or doing what I'd be doing. And then I'm going to selling corn black and leaves. I'd still have to work, you know. Yeah. And I never lost that. It was probably the best thing that ever stood to me yeah. is that grafting, like, you know. And I think, I think this a lot. Why didn't I end up in addiction? Why did I not get that bar in like some of my friends had and some of them are dead and some of them are now in the 40s and they're still using like smoking weed and drinking every night. And I think it was because of the work. I think it's because I had to go to work. So I had something to do, you know. Mm. Uh, so I never got addicted. But what I was, was drug reliant. Mm. And I relied on drugs to not have to deal with my emotions because I didn't know what to deal with them. And I remember being in therapy. And I was talking to the, the, the psychotherapist. And I was talking about smoking weed and copious amounts of weed. And she said, she said sounds like you were lucky you had it. And it was the first time I looked at it like that. And I was like, yeah. Yeah, it is. That and the horses. The horses yeah, we, we spoke about that here yeah, many times, you know. Mm. We're lucky we had drugs at the yeah, time yeah, yeah. because it stops you from committing suicide. It stops you, you know, it numbs you from the harsh reality that you're living yeah. in. Yeah. Or in, in lieu of any other coping skills, it, it is our coping skills, you know yeah, what I mean? It's, be, it's better than having no coping skills, yeah, you know? Yeah, it's, it's, there's many people alive like today because of drugs. Mm. You know, I, I said that in a conference one day and I yeah. dropped them out like that, you know. And they, they didn't get it. And then I had to try and explain to them. And then was, I was doing an interview with someone around resiliency. Now, it was someone for their masters and they wanted to interview me. Yeah. And they were talking about resiliency. And then I started talking about uh, homeless people and people, drug users, in, as resiliency. And really good resiliency to be able to live day to day in that environment. Because it would break many a person. But they never, they never looked at it that way. They just, you always see them as vulnerable people, which they are, right? Yeah. But they're also really mentally strong in other ways to be able to live in that environment and still be here with all the trauma that they went through and they found a way of living and they found a way to live in tents and still live and be able to get your substances you know what I mean yeah. so these are really really resilient people there's a great book on something what you're talking about there it's um, Victor Frankl yeah did you ever hear of Victor Frankl he's a psychiatrist he was in a a concentration camp. Okay. He was a psychiatrist when he got put into the concentration camp. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he wrote about his experiences while he was in there in secret. But he wrote a very, very famous book. It's called Man's Search for Meaning. 
and it's about even though when you're in the depths of it now there's nothing worse than Auschwitz we yeah, can yeah, agree yeah. on that yeah, yeah. but there's parallels to be drama homelessness and addiction you know, yeah, because yeah. it's a miserable miserable harsh existence that people would say oh if I was in Auschwitz or if I was in homeless or I just I wouldn't be able I wouldn't be able but when you're in that situation you you will be able because yeah, we're very we're very resilient and you find meaning in mm. that hell that you're living you'll find the meaning and and if for people that have been through a lot of traumas and that are homeless and they'll see no way out the meaning they find is the purpose they find is the drugs because it takes up all their time the focus on the drug and that's what gets them through it and um victor frankel writes a lot and it's only a short little book and i'd recommend anybody to read it so victor i'll look i'll link it in the description but it's about finding meaning and you know just that gives you that resilience to get through things that you 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 think that you may never um be able to experience you know yeah i i do uh this is i know it's kind of different but when the when the lockdown came in i went back started training with my local triathlon club and i never done 10k more than that point right uh and i used to do music and stuff before uh but I, I joined the triathlon club and then I started running 10Ks and then I started running 15Ks and then I go out and cycle 40K and then I'm cycling 80K and then I'm cycling 100Ks. Then I've gone out swimming for miles and then in the last seven months I've run two full marathons, right? But every time I'd done something that I didn't think I'd done, it could re- it reset the mind that I was more capable of doing than what I thought, mm-hmm. you know. And that's where now to do the half an hour man in August has come from. Whereas if you taught me 12 months ago or 17 months ago, I'd be doing this. I would have laughed at you. said, no fucking hope, you know. But it's because I achieved something and I reset the mindset. Well, that was, actually wasn't that bad. Maybe I can do this. And you reset and you move on, you know. Yeah. So, and, But there is, and it's, that's the experience that you're more, we're way more capable of what we can achieve. But we're just not aware that we can do it because we set the cap on what we're, what our abilities are. Yeah. And maybe it's the same with people that, are, you know, that, are, that are down and out and, and, and struggling. And, you know, there can be a sense of that. This is it. How am I going to get out of here? I've no way out of it. But Jesus, every yeah. time you're alive, you're out of it. You know what I mean? Cause you're one way, one day further down the road. That's true. No, we're not talking about the running there. Somebody came to mind. You might know him. No, Brian O'Donovan. I know well, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, uh, Brian is into the long distance running yeah, exactly. and walking. So I think he's walking in South Hill, is he? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah but um, Brian texted me the other day. He, they're, they're doing a, a 100k run or something yeah, 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 for charity. Yeah, he asked yeah. me to give it a plug, so yeah, there's yeah. my opportunity. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. linked the, I, I linked that in the description too, you know, yeah, so yeah. they're doing uh, great work above in South Hill. Yeah, no, I know Brian well, and I get great inspiration off Brian of where he's come and what he's achieved in such a short time. I think the man is so mentally strong and focused. Uh, so I do, I admire him. And, and he's a gent. He's a gent. He's an absolute gent. He's a soft man in, in his presence. Uh, but I do, I, I know him well and I do follow him in that sense. And it is a sense of something. He can do it, I can do it. You know? Yeah. Uh, and they're, they're doing it for Limerick City Watch. You know, the suicide watch. That's what they're doing it for. Okay. So there's the, the, the right plug for So it. he'll be happy with that. So yeah, well done, Brian. Brian's the guy that done that convention with us is it he did he yeah. was at the convention with us oh, Cork- he's, he was with Cork Alliance and that yeah, like, yeah. Yeah. I was actually only texting him there yesterday oh yeah <laughs> he was getting us at all the angles wasn't he yeah, yeah. yeah. But, uh, back to yourself Joe back to yourself um, you yeah. just want to continue on so you you, you had a very strong work ethic and you've worked throughout yeah um, but you were using the substances and no matter what it was it was just to kill the time and to help numb you in, in the existence you were living I, I was unhappy I was really unhappy. How long did that go on for? Uh, for Jesus, for many years, if I'm going to be honest. Like, you know, you, you kind of, it, it was a funny experience. Like, I got kicked out of school. Uh, and I deserved to be kicked out of school, you know. Okay, but I had no interest in being there. I remember going in. Actually, I, I, the only reason I got into secondary school is in the, the primary school, I got hit with a block in my eye and caught my eye. 
And so, and I went up to do the exam for the secretary school and I didn't get in. But I went in and didn't even read the questions, blah, 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 and got kicked out. But my mother went down into the school and, and told the, the principal, if you don't get him into that school, I'm going to sue the school for cutting his eye. So I got in. <laughs> you know. So, of course, I was in, like, there was all the lowest classes in the house and we were in with all the messers and I'd done a couple of years of that. And, and I got kicked out and I came back to do my junior cert. Uh, six months after being kicked out and same with then just went blah 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 they put me into a different class I didn't even know these people like you know mm. and of course I failed that and I went off on my Todd and then I went into one of the uh, the education centres and I loved it in there because I'm really good at my hands I'm good at building right so I started making TV units and I'd sell them around the place my entrepreneur thing going on you know and then I said this is what I'm into so I I started to learn actually more intelligent than I thought I was. Academically, I struggle, but practically I'm really good. Like, I build a house, right? So, and I found that they were my passions. And I'd done that for a while. And uh, we left it in the end. Actually, they got me a job in a warehouse and I'd done that for a while and kind of left that. But then I went back doing cleaning and stuff. So I was always, I never considered myself intelligent uh, you know, brain intelligence, like, you know, so I always done labouring jobs, I always done grafting jobs, and, and that's where I found myself comfortable in, you know. But it, it, after a while, I went to Dell Computers, got a job there, and that actually made, uh, that was a pivotal change in my life, because I worked in there as a grafter, and they worked you like dogs in there, and there was no kind of staff morale, you done it, you were fired, it's all fair best, but I did my market, so I quickly went up the line from pushing the buttons to the administrator, we had to do all the computer stuff, the line uh, supervisor, you know, and because of doing that, I had to send emails, so I had to learn to, to grammar, and I had to learn to spell, and I still struggle, I, I have dyslexia, so I struggle with my spelling, but spell check obviously in the computer, but I'd still get it wrong, and I'd get words that sound the same wrong, and all that kind yeah. of stuff, but it lifted me a bit, uh, that I was maybe more capable than I thought, and I went to New York for a while and I was grafting over there, you know. But when I came back, I, uh, I started volunteering for a service that worked with families affected by imprisonment, the Bedford Row Family Project. And it was a lovely synergy because the, the manager of the, the Bedford Row at the time, Larry, when I was a kid, he was a youth worker in South Hill and used to take us fishing and camping. And I met him. I said, oh, can I come and volunteer for you? And he said, grand. And he actually became my mentor. He took me under his wing. He put me into personal development courses. He put me onto counseling courses. He helped me with my proofreading. And that whole service of Bedford Row and the people in it, most more grassroots and came up through the community who, who experienced imprisonment and got educated and worked there. So there, it was a really nice environment and they're always supportive. Uh, and in, at the time, what I was doing was wearing the shell of confidence, but I wasn't. I was totally insecure, mm. but I hid it well and I did and done my job. But uh, I'm only coming off the back of a master's. And, you know, I've done loads of counselling over the years and loads of group counselling. And it was all grand and there's loads of awareness in it. And I learned a lot about myself, right? But it was only actually after this master's, I'd go and do another 30 hours of therapy. And I always felt like a fraud that I was doing this job, but actually I was winging it that I didn't know what I was doing. And I, even though I've been doing it for the last 12 or 13 years, I've stayed in education for the last 12 and 13 years, and I still felt like a fraud, right? Mm -hmm. That I, I didn't know, and some, sooner or later, someone's going to find out that I haven't a clue what I'm doing, you know? And it was this time, though, when I went to the therapy, and maybe the world's aligned. And what I realized, and this, this resonated with your last interview with Gabor, when, when you asked him about yourself, what I realized is all those insecurities was the inner child that was controlling the man, mm -hmm. right? I wasn't that person anymore and I finally I finally figured that out all my insecurities all my lack of confidence I was still being decided by this kid who was an internal mm. and I was and I figured out it was able to separate it so this kid is no longer affecting my life or controlling my life yes anxiety comes up every now and again but that's normal we have a sense of insecurities but I'm good at what I do 
you know what I mean I'm really good at what I do because I've educated myself for the last 12 years in the theory of it I spent my entire life living it what was the masters uh, addiction counseling psychotherapy and how did you find doing the masters with dyslexia was it tough it, it nearly broke me yeah. uh, and I was just saying I, I done the two years done all the modules and then I had to take a year away and I just went back now and I'm in the middle of completing the dissertation now well it was the hardest thing I ever done and I find myself being really annoyed that this whole structured essay defines my experience and my education and I t- actually I think it's unfair because it's no, I have no interest in it I hate it I hate having to do it you know yeah. because it's so difficult for me to do and doing the references and all those kind of things but it's like why is that the only way of presenting my, my intelligence in this area of what I'm doing that I have to write this essay in this way and if I fail this structure I am uh, in a way failing all the experience I have because I won't have the paperwork to show it. Mm-hmm. So that, that bothers me. I think there should be more flexibility on how you can present your intelligence and your education in the area you want to work with and mm-hmm. the expertise that you want to work in. But that, that was the biggest turning point in my life. And that was only in the last couple of years. If the Tommy Taren show had contacted me previously, I would never would have went on the show. No way would I stuck my neck out like that, you know? So what, I, 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 I have a similar similar experience to yourself the Tommy Turner show asked me to come on the Tommy, they asked me to come on 2018 mm. and I was just after finishing my bachelor's degree and I was very um, I wasn't well enough in myself to do it do you know what I mean and yeah. I, I just said no do you know yeah. after meeting them um, after that then when I, I did my master's and I was getting married and I was way better in myself do you know what yeah, I mean yeah, they yeah. came back a year later and asked me and mm-hmm. I was like, you know what, the time is right now and yeah, I feel yeah. more confident. Yeah. I feel like it's very similar to yourself there, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. like, you know, that the time was right and Yeah, and, and it has to be the, the right. I, I said to someone the other day, I this is the best version of myself I've ever been. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I'm not perfect and I have my ups and downs, but I'm I am the best version of myself I've ever been. And it was all through the therapy and it was all through being open and, and speaking about my issues. It was all through accepting uh who I am. I love who I am. You know, and for a long time I didn't. But I wasn't able to love him because I wasn't able to, I wasn't allowed the space or the time to actually really get to know myself, you mm. know. And then I always found, and even with people that did know me, even people I grew up with, in my own parents and siblings, they didn't know me at all. They, they saw a version of me that, which they thought was me, and I spent for said, You haven't a clue who I am. You know nothing about me. No one ever asked. Mm. You know, no one ever took the time. And even if they had, I honestly probably wouldn't have had the, the confidence and the, feel safe enough to tell them who I am. Or even the vocabulary to have it, to just speak about it. You know, uh, that's where education comes into the line, the light of it. Education is critical for someone like you mm. or me to be able to express ourselves, you know, to, to gain a vocabulary, to understand the wording in terms of the feelings that we we're going through, you know, and when that happens, then when we learn the words that we can express ourselves with, that's where we're able to inspire other people that are behind yeah. us to help them out, you know. Yeah. So, um, yeah, but uh, there was another point. Uh, I think it's it's well worth to mention as well the Tommy Tiernan show, right? They're they bring on some fantastic guests like yourself, James, and other and, people. And, and good-looking ones too, wouldn't they? Yeah. <laughs> well, well, do you know what? Good man, they, Like, they don't, they don't keep it at a level where it's, 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 it's related to non-crime or anything mm. like that. They bring yeah, yeah. really inspirational people on that are really doing fantastic things. 
you know and there was a thought came to my head and I don't know does anybody from the Tommy Tierney show watch, watch it and maybe somebody will because the two of yourselves a great guest that I think would be uh, perfect for the Tommy Tierney show and it would be around all this stuff as well what, what you're doing Real life. we're doing here yeah. would be Damien Quinn yeah. where he speaks about the the Garda vetting situation and integrating people from prison and not just prison people that have had tough backgrounds with addiction and stuff like that and homelessness and just to talk about it and how to integrate them back into society in terms of jobs mm. and not just jobs there's a very important aspect to that as well it's about therapy it's about getting people ready yeah. for these environments as well you know so I don't know would uh, Damien be interested no no we had Damien on this one of these podcasts so I don't know would he take a step backwards you know yeah 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 very good <laughs> but uh, I, on that I, I was listening to your wife's podcast yeah. right? that was fantastic right and I think I think the more people that can speak see there's, I, I see it in two different ways you have now excelled yourselves right and you have lifted your status in society right from where you started, you are now people that pe- at the society find credible, right? And they listen to what you have to say. They listen to your stories and they listen. And maybe there's they're listening, so they'll take it in. There's education now happening, you know. And when you when you, when your wife was saying about setting the bar of getting to limit prison, I understand that. I get that, you know. But I think the rest of society will now get that and listen because they're listening to people that they believe, right? Mm-hmm. Sadly, a lot of people that are still kind of living in disadvantage or living in areas that are considered rough or considered uh, no-go areas, they have all this experience, right? And all this advice, but they have no credibility because society won't give it to them because they see them less than, right? Mm-hmm. And I think this is why this is so important, that you have people who have the experience, in-depth knowledge and experience, but now are at a level. And it's sad that they have that level where society will find them, will listen, you know. But this is what this is about. Yeah. This is what this is doing. It's like what Tommy Turner gave me a new yeah. platform, yeah. you know, and now we're using that bit of status that I, I am anyway, yeah. that bit of a profile that yeah. I got to get mm-hmm. people on the podcast. Yeah. And mm-hmm. because when I come off the Tommy Turner show, so many people contacted me yeah, and yeah. I never felt like I'm not special or anything yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah. And I know a lot of people like me yeah, yeah, yeah. that have equal good stories. You know what yeah. I mean? The likes of Timmy, the likes of yourself, the guests we've had on. And I was like, you know what? I want to give these people a platform because yeah. there's so much wisdom experience out there. Yeah. And they should be, you know, I value all that. You know, so that's the beauty of having an independent production you know what I mean is that yeah exactly and it'll grow it'll grow like this grew from the Tommy Tiernan show other people it'll just keep growing other people have the confidence to go away and do their own thing and start their own podcasts or their own uh, whatever it may be it's the knit and gritty and it's the honesty and this is why I think for me personally why I follow and why I think it's so good is it's it's the topic, it's a difficult topic, mm. but it's a topic that needs to be shared and it's a topic that will have great learning for other people uh, that maybe will change their perspective and change the bias that they have and the, the bias they're unaware that they have, you know. I do a lot of kind of trying to get people to think of... Uh, I, I was at a, a comedy club, right, with Reginald D. Hunter. He, he's a yeah. southern black sort of guy and yeah. down in Galway. And he kept saying through the, the comedy show, which was, wasn't relevant to the comedy show, beware of your bias, they may not be, may not be yours. 
because what they are is they were given to you through your family or, yes. or people of influence. And now that racism, this is where it comes from, right? Yeah. You don't, you weren't born a racist, you become a racist. Yeah. But you can get to a stage in your life where you think, do you know what, do I, do I actually believe that? Is that mine? Is that my true believing or someone give me that? Mm. Do I still believe that? Do I want to believe that? And this, this is where you can challenge your bias because the bias was given to you by someone else. And you don't have to keep that. You can change your opinion on someone. Your family mightn't or your peers mightn't, but you have the right to change your views. And this is how it will be done. It'll be done through education and it'll be done through people speaking with a level of passion and, and credibility. Sadly, it's needed. You need credibility. You know? I think you're touching on an important point there. And it's around people can change their opinions oh, yeah. and biases and yeah. be, become aware um, that's why I have a big problem with cancel culture. You know, mm. if some if somebody said something years ago and it's brought to light today, um, that's the end of them. And you see yeah, it happening yeah. all the time. Yeah, yeah. And I often say to my wife, you know, if stuff came up from my past or Timmy's past or all of our pasts that we were judged on today, yeah, yeah. be cancelled in the morning. Oh, you know yeah. what I mean? yeah. But people have the capacity to learn. People have the capacity to change, become aware, become more wise and mature. You know, so yeah. I think like cancelling people and you know, writing them off, you know, they should be allowed to... Um, yeah, I mean, if you don't allow to change, then what's the point in sending someone to prison? Well, the whole purpose of prison, it's supposed to be, you know, it doesn't work that way, was to rehabilitate. Mm. Okay, so now they've come out of prison, they've changed, but you're still judging them on what they've done in their past, you know? Mm. One of the best things I ever uh, heard, I follow Muhammad Ali, right? I think he's a legend. I think he's a very wise man. Mm. But he said something that always resonated with me. If you act an age at 60 the same way you did at 30, you've wasted 30 years of your life. Mm. Life is all about growing. But you can only grow if your eyes are open and you have and you're able to grow and you expand your your view. So if you like take parenting even, right? And this is the generational stuff. So my father parented me how he was parented and it was with an iron fist. But that's what he knew. He knew no better. Right? I know that now, mm. but at the time, you know. But if he, no, they didn't at that time, but just say it was in this time and we were there again and he was made go to a parenting class, of course, or he made go to different things where he can expand his view, expand that tunnel vision, say, oh, actually, there's other ways of rearing children and maybe the way my parents done it for me wasn't the best in the first place. Then you, you've learned. But you can only do that if you expand outside your bubble. So if you stay with the same people, with the same conversations, you will never learn anything new. Yeah. You have to expand it out, you know. And that's where, like, the key workers and, you know, the youth workers and they, they integrate themselves into society or into a, a closed society in some ways and try and expand people's horizons yeah. and, and, and grow. Them, it's true, know? it's true. Yeah. Do you want to talk to us about equine therapy? Yeah. Uh, so the equine therapy, like I said, uh, you know, we had horses when we were younger in South Hill. And that's where I went to express all my emotions because I had nowhere else to do it. So I'd done it on the horses and, and the donkey at the time. And the donkey was for a long time. People laughed say, but he was my best friend. Do you know when you're living in a council estate mm. uh, and you have horses and donkeys? Yeah. Are they in the garden? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then they're in the back garden. But it was funny. Like I said, South Hill at the time, you were at one side was all the countryside, right? And it was like the Wild West. And what everyone done was they, there was before, there was a golf course there now, but before it was all open land. And people just went and fenced off their part. This is my part. That's your part. You <laughs> are. Keep your horses all in my land. It's not your land. It's in my land, right? So all this went on. But there'd be killings, right? And then if someone put the horse in, you'd kick it out and say, oh, fucking pound, I'll take that horse. You know, don't put him into my land again, you know? So this happened. <laughs> but then the golf course came and it took all the land away, right? So, But I, the, I don't know what the county council thought, that people would just stop having horses, but it just forced them right into the middle of the council. So we had them there and we had them in the back garden. We had them everywhere, really. 
but yeah, so I'd go to the horses uh, and I'd uh, get my needs met, my emotional needs met. And so I always knew that they would do something, right? But of course, it wasn't until I was an adult and became educated in an area of counseling and reflective practice that I really started seeing what they were giving me and what they were giving me as an emotional release. And then maybe that's why I didn't go far, that far into the drug use. So I had, I had a release, you know, I had mm. something that I go to. Uh, and so then we fast forward on and I trained as a, I worked with families in the Bedford Road, working families affected by imprisonment. And I spent three years, and that's where I volunteered and started to train, and I worked with the youths, and I worked with one or two families from, from different areas. And then I trained as an addiction counsellor, and I started working as an addiction counsellor with adolescents, spent eight years working with drug use and adolescents in the, in the service in Limerick, in the cover of the Midwest. But it was during that time, early in that time, one of the other workers said, oh, there's some kind of demo with horses out in the deer. Do you want to go? And of course, horses, off we go. Uh, and I went out and watched them. It's called the EGAL model, which is the Equine Assisted Growth and Learning Association. And what it is, is Equine Assisted Counselling. Right, so this is the difference. So there's equine assisted therapies and equine assisted riding for disabilities and all that kind of stuff. But what I do is equine assisted counseling. So what I'm doing is counseling through the intermediate of, of horses. Uh, and why I loved it so much was there's an ethical side behind it. So there's a team approach. So you have to have a trained mental health professional. So as from Irish perspective, you have to have a counselor, psych therapist as part of the team. You also have to have an equine specialist. So there's someone who's trained in horses with many years of experience. And the horses. Uh, so the way it works is very simply is it's ground based activities. The horses are totally unrestrained in their natural environment, right? And the reason you use horses is uh, through years of evolution as a prey animal, as in they were hunted and ate. That's what they done. You know, they they weren't hunters. They were they learned really internal skills and really uh, powerful skills on scanning the area. Right? They know what's coming. They know when a sleeping line is asleep or pretending to be asleep. They know when his belly's full, right? So they have these internal skills that they never lost. So even though they became domesticated, they keep those heightened sense of their scan in their environment. They can pick up a human heartbeat from around four feet away, right? So what makes them so effective in this role is if you have someone's gone into their environment and had the poker face on, you know, I'm grand, I'm grand, but on the inside they're in turmoil. The horse can see that difference because they're really, obviously they, they, they've no language, but they're really wrong, strong on body language. That's how they communicate. So they'll pick up on everything you're doing, your presence, how you're standing, how you're breathing, how your heart rate is. And then if there's inside... Uh, I don't know, anguish going on, they seem to be able to read it. It's really in-depth, right? So what will happen then is based on how you're behaving, the horse will respond to you, whether he can trust you or not. So what the per- what's happening for the person then is they're in there with the, with the horses. The horses are behaving in whatever manner, but it's triggering something new, right? My job then and the equine specialist's job is to figure out well, what's going on here. So oh, that one is making me nervous, right? Mm. So what is it about the horse that's making you nervous? Right. Well, I don't know. You know, if you're working with adolescents, they, they usually won't answer that question. But it's not a talking therapy. You don't have to. But when you're working with adults, you usually get a bit, bit more, they're a bit more communicative. Yeah. Uh, oh, I don't know. So what I would say, you know, okay, I, is there has been other times in your life where you feel this kind of level of nervousness? So what I'm doing is taking it away from the horses and bringing it back into their, their life. And the way it goes on, then the horses turn into real life representations of areas of their life. The arena and the horses turn into people and places. Mm. Well, that one's like my mother. Because they very much have personalities. They're very much uh, a community pack. You'll have the, the, the head of the pack. You'll have the submissive one. You'll have the one that does no boundaries. You'll have the one that's slobbing around the place. But they all mean something. So very quickly, yeah, that one's my boss or that one's my mother. So yeah. we're no longer dealing with horses. Now we're dealing with your mother, right? Mm-hmm. And your mother has just done something to this other thing. So what's, that, what's going on with your mother there? 
And that's how the language I would use. And then what to do is start seeing their mother. Uh, like a simple example is we had a, a mother come down with a, a daughter who was 18 and the mother wanted the daughter to go to college. The daughter didn't want to go. And we were in the arena and we were working through this. And one of the big, I big horses and small horses and the big horse, for lack of you know, better word, bit the smaller horse in the arse, right? And pushed it through a fence, right? And the mother was watching this and she goes, that's what I'm doing to my daughter and I'm pushing her away from me. I was like, I don't know, is that's what's happening? You know, so she saw herself, she saw her daughter. So the horses gave her a real life visual role play of situations. And that's what I do. That's unbelievable, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. So that's why I, I work with behavioral and emotional issues. And if you're in the counseling room with me, right, it, it can be an intense environment. It's also a very intimate environment, right? And for some people, it works really well. But for others, they don't want to go and do that, right? They don't want talking therapy. When you're with the horses, the, the visual is external. I'm not looking at you. When we're looking, we're all, even, we're all looking at the horses. So we're looking at the horses, we're talking about the horses, what's going on for the horses. So I'm, I won't be asking you what's going on for you while you're looking at them. I'm saying, what's going on with the horses? How do you think they're behaving? How do you think they're feeling? But I'm, I'm not giving that any indication to you how I think they're feeling. So it's all coming from you. It's like a mirror effect. Mm. They're projecting the whole on on. And then when they're projecting, then you can start getting into deeper parts of their life. And then you might say, you know, I, I've disconnected, like, okay, well, I welcome you to go and connect with your mother if, if, the, if abandonment is the issue. Like. Yeah. So you can pick a topic that they want to work on, right? But sometimes they'll come in and say, I don't know what I want to work on. So there's no agenda. Because you can't set an agenda because I don't know the horse is going to behave to you. And I don't know what's going to bring it up for you. So it's totally experiential and totally in the moment. So, so whatever you say is the focus of our conversation. Yeah. So which means it empowers you when you have to take the lead. Now, when it's happening, myself and my colleague will be standing at the far end of the arena. We're not with you. We're, we've moved away and you're out there doing what you need to do. And sometimes they're out there and they're lost. So, okay, well, you're lost. That's the process. That's what you're feeling. Or you're feeling lost. Mm. If I come in and tell you what to do, I've disempowered you. Mm. The whole point is to create a safe environment where you can practice real life situations in a safe place where the horses can be like humans. And you need to figure it out. If you're lost, I can't save you in there. You have to figure it out. It almost sounds like it would be very helpful you know, for people that want or need therapy or counselling, mm. but maybe they're not able to or willing to have a kind of level of introspection or share yeah. some of their innermost yeah. thoughts with somebody else because yeah. of trust. Having that external thing to focus on could help bring that out in a way. Like, all the focus is not on me. The focus is on the horse, but that brings that out you know I yeah. think it would really help people mm-hmm. yeah it's, do you it's take, really do you take um, referrals from the HSC is it private can people yeah. do pay I, so I get referrals from many different areas obviously the more platforms I do the, the busier it's get but for a long time I would have got referrals from the HSC and usually kids that end up in foster care when they didn't want to go there you're not going to ask them mm-hmm. to take it from the family I do a lot of work with guarded diversion that kind of stuff so I have a program so there's, there's two levels so I do equine assisted counselling and that is that kind of deeper therapeutic stuff. But then I'd have groups and that would be equine assisted learning because you're not going to do a deep therapy with someone that's going to be exposed in a group mm. and, and, and make them vulnerable. So I run a program called the Power Tools for Living and that's very directive and we work on uh, communication skills, boundaries, relationships, respect, choices and consequences, all that kind of stuff and, and they work through it. And we had, uh, we had one of the drug services down and we were doing a thing around boundaries. Mm. So, and they were in, they were in recovery and they're doing well. And it was about how to protect your boundaries when you get out into, into the real world again, you know. So I got them to build, because uh, of props and things. So I built something to, that will represent your boundaries, right? Mm. And what I done then was got a load of horse feed and threw it into the middle of it. And they had to stop the horses from coming inside their boundaries, but they couldn't touch the horses, right? 
So they had to figure out how they're going to collect their bounties from these horses. But so this, they built this big elaborate thing, right? And it was all walls and barrels, and they put a lot of time in the horses. It's just really cool. But the horses got in, destroyed it all, right? Knocked everything to the ground. <laughs> and a different learning happened than I expected. One of them said, Jesus, that's like my mother's house when we destroy it from parties. Mm-hmm. And he's sitting down, he's looking at the place destroyed that he just built. And he looked at, and he became the horse and the representation gave me family's home. And he was starting to emphasize what his mother almost felt like when he destroyed the house. And then, then the rest of the lads started talking about this. So I just, this is great learning, we just go with this, you know. So this is what happened through the horse's behavior. You know, totally off the direction that I wanted to go, because it was about peer pressure I wanted to look at. But this is what happens with this is great learning, so we've done that, you know. Mm-hmm. We had another lad, same thing, actually from one of the, the services. And I have a horse there who's quite sensitive. And if you're not very calm and very relaxed, you can't get anyone near her, right? She won't, she won't have you. But she's beautiful, so they all want to be around her. So this lad was try, trying to catch this horse. And we were watching him in the distance. But he was really, really, everything was fast and everything was aggressive and everything was angry, you know. He kept trying to get her and she would just move two feet away from him every time out of his reach. And next he said, that horse is a stock up. You know, he let rip, right? And he stormed out of the arena. The lads were laughing and said, no, let him go, let him go. So he went off up and he came down and he came back in. So let's talk about this. Like, you know, so what happened? Oh, that horse is a stuck up, blah, blah, blah. Okay. Is there anything else that might be going on for the horse? You know, is there any other feelings the horse might be going through? And then, of course, his peers were like, because they're used to therapy now at this stage. Yeah. Maybe he's shy. Or maybe maybe you're frightening the horse. Or maybe the horse is nervous, right? So we started talking about all these other ways. So is there something around your approach that's frightening the horse? And then, of course, I dropped in as the mental health person. I said, I wonder, has been other times in your life where you thought people were stuck up, blah, blah, blah. But really, they were insecure and they were shy and then maybe they were a bit afraid of you. And next you can see, boom, 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 right? So if I had said this at the start, mm. they would have just got defensive. Mm. No, I'm not like that, you know? So you don't, because it's a, it's our, it's a, we push back all the time as with this thing, you know? So you don't, you let it happen organically through the horses. And because it's done through the horses, there's no need to feel intimidated or defensive because you, you've just experienced it naturally through yourself. So that's a, a, an example of visuals of how being with the horses will say, oh, that's what it means. Mm. It's a bit of like um, motivational interviewing as well, where like you yeah. get them to see the value, you get them to experience the change themselves. Yeah. Or maybe if you're working with somebody, you're not going to tell them how to behave yeah. or how to best change. Yeah. You help them, you facilitate them, so they come to that. Um, yeah, it's, 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 it's a right? promoting autonomy. I, yeah. I'm a, men, a member of Mint, the motivational interviewing network of trainers. So I've trained in MI since the very start. I love it. Yeah. I love the ethos around it. I love the respect that it gives to the person that you're working with. And also, I love the honesty that says, you're the expert. And yeah. I truly believe that. Eh? Even when the work that we're doing with the horses, trust me, what do I do? So, you're the expert on you. And you just need to figure it out, you know? So it's all you're trying to do is you're drawing out all this stuff so they can figure it out for themselves. So yeah. my, my whole approach is more of an You know, the, yeah, yeah, that's what I was going to say, is the, the approach you have to that mm. situation, say, for instance, that young lad you run about there and his demeanor was probably very angry and all these different things. But if you went into a session with him and you said something like that, he would get very offensive. Of course he would. You know, and I'm looking at this now from my own kind of experience because I would have been very... But when you look at a horse mm. and and it's an actual situation and experience and there's nobody labeling you mm. we're looking at a situation and you're explaining a possibility it's a very 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 easier way and more calmer mm. and for instance he'll remember that a lot more than he will 
you said, oh, you're very, yeah, yeah. you're, you're, you're the main wrong. You know, it's, that's a fantastic, it's, it's a great way to actually teach young t- teenagers really yeah. about all these things. You know? I, I try and do it in my life with my own kids. I mean, one of the things that always hear me saying is, well, we can't do it, figure it out. Because sometimes they're just, they want you to do because they don't want to do it. Mm-hmm. Well, figure it out. You know, just figure it out. You know, especially when I know it's not something that's a, a risk to them. Uh, because I want them strong, I want them independent, I want them resilient. So I'm not doing it for you. And of course, they think I'm the worst dad in the world, you know. I say, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not here to be your best friend. I'm here to teach you morals. I'm here to teach you to be a good person. Mm. And I'm here to teach you to be resilient. Yeah. And that means I can't be your best friend. You know, I'm your educator, you know. Yeah. And the educate, the, how you educate is letting them figure it out. Mm. You know? Is there any similar service in Cork or around the country? Or? Yeah, so the, the Gala model, like I said, it, it's worldwide. It's practiced in 50 countries. So I'm the, the network coordinator for Ireland. And there's a number of us around the country. There's two here in Cork. There's one in Wexford. There's one in Kildare. There's one in Limerick. There's one in Galway. Uh, I hope I'm not missing anything. So there's a few around the place. And we meet regularly and we share information and we train each other. And then I would get a lot of resources and I would send it in. Like I got loads of referrals off the Tommy Dernan show from Cork, from different areas, but I won't take them. Morally, it would be wrong to say, yeah, come up to me when I know there's a service closer. Uh, you yeah. know, because I, if someone's driving with it from Dublin or Cork to see me, that's three hours driving up and down, right? Yeah. An hour and a half each way, an hour a session. That's four hours of the day gone to bring someone to get help. And that causes stress. Yeah. So I, I will never take someone that's... At the core of what you're doing is person-centered, do you know what I mean? And that's not a person-centered, you know? no, so no. That, that wouldn't sit with no, you. No. But I think, we, I think we get a lot of interest once we air this podcast yeah. from people. Yeah, yeah. So I'll... Have you got a website? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so gsequintherapies.ie, you'll find it there. Just put in Joe Slattery, you know. Yeah. Uh, even put up, if, if people really want to understand it, put up the link for the TED Talk. That really explains yeah. it in great detail. Like I, I linked a whole lot of them. I linked the, the Tommy Taylor in the TED Talk and uh, I linked the website, yeah. your social media. Yeah. And is there a national website for the different equine counseling therapies around Ireland? No. Like if you, if you go on to the main gala, uh, website which is an American based gala.org www.gala.org and go and find the program but in Ireland and we'll come up there like just all the Irish ones are on it there like, yeah you know? I linked that as well what's the plans for the future that you finish your dissertation I suppose anyway get that out of the way it's a, I, I, I suppose I never, I never talked about it I run a service in Limerick as well I run a charity for families affected by imprisonment so I work full time running the charity what's the name of the charity it's the North Star Family Support Project in, in Limerick City so it's a free service for families affected by substance misuse so I've gone the other side from working with the drug users not to work with the families because yeah. you know you, you see the other side of it yeah. so and I took over that role about two years ago I have a lot of plans and, and aspirations for that I mean, the, the idea is to do to do the equine full time, you know, but it's, it's not there yet. You know, mm-hmm. there's other services in America and they're employing loads of people and that's what they do full time. Ireland is a bit slower with alternatives and looking at alternatives to traditional talk therapy. But the plan is at some stage to have my own therapeutic facility that will do the equine therapy, that will incorporate mindfulness, will incorporate workshops, but all that nature based, you know. No, obviously, I, you know, I'm not uh, a rich person. Even the land I use at the moment is not mine. It's a neighbor who's letting me use it. So it's a long way down the road. Maybe it's more a goal and aspiration to get there, have my property, have those facilities and do that full time, you know. But right now it, it's to, it's to balance the lot. So obviously I do all my training and my sports. I'm running the charity. I'm in the middle of doing my masters and I do the equine therapy. So. We'll lock on, on. 
I have. And but you I, put I, your big plans. I big plans, but I, what I've done is I've learned to balance it because I burnt out in the past, mm. you know, and it was a bad burnout and it was great learning in it. So I, I now, I'm also older. I don't have the energy I used to have yeah, to do yeah. all that stuff and, and hold all that anymore, like, you know. So now what I've learned to do, whereas, whereas in the past, because of the work ethic, I would never say no to work, any kind of work. So I could be doing five different things at one time and just grafting, grafting, grafting. Now I just say no. Yeah. So, no, I'm sorry, I can't do it. I, I don't have time, you know, I, I just mind myself. And I, I, I keep that balance of pleasure because I know once that starts going, that means my mental health is not well if I start dropping the stuff, you know. Yeah. So I'm not doing that anymore. I just say no. Yeah, well, Fair look, um, you're doing a phenomenal work there. If there's any way we can ever help, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. in terms of, uh, I don't know, a fundraiser or something yeah. like that, I don't know. Look, yeah, we'd yeah. be very happy to help out. Well, if, you're, if you're ever looking to break in any horses, give me a show. Uh, yeah. I have a brother there, he's a great yeah. old jockey. He, uh, we don't do any horse riding, it's all yeah. your best. Yeah, you know, yeah. So we, I don't even ride anymore. I used to, I don't, I don't ride anymore. Uh, but you are, like, I mean, you are doing great work and there's a lot of notoriety around you now and you're very well respected. So you are in demand, you know, there is talks to try and get you to Limerick to do something up there maybe in September yeah. for the recovery week you know so oh, that'd be the job we're actually in County Clare in October in uh, the Stone Varna on the road uh, 50 tickets uh, if it opens up we'll get 100 in there yeah brilliant no I think there's about 40 tickets sold already yeah. but uh, half knock Nahini is going to be yeah, it's Dun Verna, what now I had it, it's Dun Verna, Le Hinch Dool in Ireland, BMBs are all booked at the moment. But there's great interest in the top of, of addiction and it's growing all the time and there's great awareness. And I suppose one of my theories around it is because drugs are now, you know, whereas in the past they, they weren't uh, as sociable as they are now, whereas obviously uh, cocaine and cannabis is very sociable and very much accepted within, within mm. the country, yeah. which is causing a lot of damage, which means a lot of people are being affected by it, but so are their families and so are their friends. So a lot of people now are more interested in the topic because they have some kind of uh, either first-hand experience or second-hand experience, and now they want to learn about it. So sadly, because of what's happening, it's becoming more uh, notoriety around it. But on the flip side, then you have a lot of people wanting to know more about it and be educated in it because they're kind of affected in one way or another. Yeah. So, I, I mean, you'll fill them. You should fill them. I mean, I think anyone, when you do drug kind of education, all those courses now are filling up. Yeah. Sadly, for the wrong reason, but yeah. filling up, you know. Yeah. yeah. But look, um, we'll, we'll call it a day. Um, thanks a million for coming down to meet us. Yeah, yeah, my It pleasure. was a real pleasure talking to you. Um, mm. Very interesting stuff through the whole way through. Yeah, definitely. I definitely uh, believe what you're doing is something that's fantastic because I, I could picture myself mm. in some of the situations there and it would be a great way for people to understand themselves and, and for information to be given to them on a really relaxed kind of level instead of another authority figure yeah, yeah. telling them, oh, that's wrong with you, you know. So I think something like that and explaining it to them and the background to it is fantastic. Yeah, yeah, we do demos all the time, free demos for services for people yeah. because it's, it's hard to explain until you experience it. And when you experience it, then a lot of people have profound impacts only in the demo. Yeah. And that's why you need a mental health person because you don't know what it triggers in people. Like, you know? Excellent. So, Look, stay, in touch, stay in touch. Stay in touch. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Timmy. Thanks, Rowan. Thank we'll see. Thanks, George. Safe journey home. Enjoy yeah, the big always. smoke. And we'll see everybody next week. <laughs> Hi everybody, thanks for listening to the podcast uh, Don't forget to like and subscribe And don't forget to head over to the Patreon If you'd like to help us Thanks again Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ The future isn't scary Not realizing its potential, however, could be 
Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.